You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hi, and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. Here in the U.S. and in much of the Northern Hemisphere, it's time to go back to school. This year, there is the added anxiety of how kids will go back to school. With COVID-19 still spreading, how do we keep people safe and keep students learning? What impact could this have on students and on education itself? Joining me is Jimmy Saracasanis, a leader in McKinsey's North American education practice out of Washington, who also leads the K-12 work internationally. Jimmy, welcome. Thanks, Diane. It's a pleasure to be here. Right. Well, let's start to get some sense of the landscape. What did we learn from the shutdowns last spring? Well, one thing we learned is very few schools and school systems were ready to do school remotely. Uh, There was a a big scramble um, in pretty much every home and every school and every school system to figure out how do we keep students learning when they can't go into school. Uh, There were a lot of things tried. Thankfully, many school systems did did try. Uh, some of them found it too difficult, actually, to even get uh, things like uh, paper and pencil-based resources and, and, and any sort of connection to their students. But many were trying daily or multiple points throughout the day, check-ins with their, with their students virtually uh, through things like, you know, video conferencing apps and, uh, and other tools. Some countries that had you know, even less less access than much of the U.S. were creating TV stations, uh, radio stations that that students could tune into to get at least some instruction. Um, I think largely, though, we learned that the scramble in the spring wasn't really good enough. Uh, and despite our, you know, many of our best efforts, we uh, we need to do better if we're going to be continuing to do remote and virtual instruction in this coming school year. You know, I'm the parent of a high schooler, and I just have visions of him lying on his bed saying he was logging into classes, and it did not go very well. And I start to think about kids who don't even have access to computers. Um, What, you know, tell us a little bit about the learning gaps and what happened there. Yeah, so we're still trying to figure out exactly uh, what level of learning did happen in the spring? Our hope is that uh, over the next couple of months, as students go back uh, to some version of school, we'll actually be able to assess what students really do know, where they where they actually are, uh, and and compare that to where they are in other years uh, coming in in the fall. But we do know that there is wide variation in access among students. So we know that uh, in the U.S., for example, there were big gaps uh, in access to devices and connectivity among lower income students, among Black students, among Hispanic students. We saw this in, in login data uh, and self-reported, you know, self-reported information on, uh, on simple access. And, and our estimates are that if that disruption continues until January, let's say, students nationally are going to lose about seven months of learning. But that, wow. that loss won't be equal. Whereas, you know, white students, uh, we expect, given that level of disruption, will lose about six months of learning. Uh, Hispanic students, we expect to lose about nine and black students up to 10 months of learning. So it's almost as if it's worse than if they had not been in school at all in some cases. Can you give me some sense of that? I mean, as to why it's what it is that has made kids suffer so much? 
Yeah. So it, it, it's not clear that it was worse than, uh, than not being in school at all. Um, but it's, it's definitely the case that low quality remote learning or, you know, students struggling to actually even log in or uh, have any access or interaction with their teachers um, is at least as bad as, you know, what we've seen in past years for students losing ground over the summer, for example. And some of the challenges are are those things we would expect, you know, first and foremost, as, as we've said, the, the ability to have a device and strong enough internet connection to actually log in if there is a, uh, you know, a session with a, with a teacher or, um, or a discussion, you know, we've all learned as, as parents and as adults trying to work remotely through this time that it's not always easy. It's not always easy to find a quiet, calm place and students are no exception. And, and we also know that students in challenging circumstances have a harder time finding a, a, a calm setting to be able to do that. And finally, you know, imagine a second grader, uh, a third grader, a kindergartner trying to engage pretty much on their own for an entire day. Those students that have a parent or a guardian or some other family member that can support them throughout the day are going to have a much easier time of learning and, and staying productive and engaged and enjoying themselves than a child who has, you know, all of their family members either at work or needing to be engaged in work and unable to spend time supporting them throughout the day. So it's just a, you know, a range of factors, many of which end up challenging, again, students of color and, uh, and, and low-income students more than their, their white and uh, wealthier peers. Well, and you raise a good point with younger kids because they really can't engage in the same way. What are some of, when you think about priorities of who needs to get into the classroom once it's safe to be in the classroom, how would you rank the different groups? Yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a tough question. Um, and, you know, every community in the U.S. and around the world is thinking about this, and some of them think about it differently. I think in general, though, there there, there appears to be consensus that there are kind of three groups of students that that school systems are trying to get back into, you know, really in-person learning, but some form of really supportive learnings first. And that's basically the, the couple of groups that we've been talking about, those students that might be furthest behind in their learning, whether because they had access challenges in the spring or otherwise have had challenges in, in engaging in remote learning. But that, that's kind of group one is students who are experiencing greater challenges uh, and are further behind. Also students that have special needs that that simply can't be uh, met outside of the classroom. So in the U.S., that'd be students with IEPs that have... That's individual education plans. Is that what an IEP is? Yeah, an individual education program. So mm-hmm. uh, essentially students that are in uh, receiving some sort of special education service. Um, some of those can't be effectively done remotely. And so that's another group of students that it's important that school systems try to get back in person first. And then uh, I think we have learned, and it sort of matches a lot of our intuition, that for the youngest students, it's both more difficult for them to engage uh, in learning remotely, but also if they're home, families can't go back to work. So from mm-hmm. a uh, from an economic activity standpoint and an ability to to reopen and restart the broader economy, getting younger children back to school so that schools can perform that what you know should be the secondary role of schools in childcare, but we're finding is uh, is really critical um, that they can start playing that again too. You mentioned how schools suddenly shut down. We've now had several months to plan. So how will remote learning look different? Yeah, we've have had a couple of months to plan. Um, We've also had several months for for schools and school systems to ask their families and their communities 
how it went and what they would like to see different. And I think there are a couple of things that are likely to change across many school systems as we get back to school. Um, the first is I expect there will be more emphasis on what a full day experience should look and feel like for a student, for their families, and for a teacher. You know, in the spring, it was basically do whatever we can. And there were often long stretches of time where where students or their families didn't really know what they what they should be doing because educators hadn't really figured out what they think they should be doing mm-hmm. at the moment because it was new for everybody. But now with time, there's there's gonna be a lot more purposeful planning on what an experience should should look and feel like. So how much of the day should be live instruction versus uh, versus independent work? How much should be digital and online versus versus offline, paper and pencil, or just reading? And for those sessions that are that are live, how much of that is with a big group of a whole class versus small group instruction with a teacher versus one-on-one with a teacher or one-on-one with some other uh, adult or even in small groups with individual students? So th- there will be more thoughtful experiences that are crafted for, for a student's day. So, Jimmy, what are some of the different ways to go with a hybrid model? First, just to kind of lay out the purpose of a hybrid model uh, as school systems are are thinking about them now is to to figure out how we can have some students in school in person while other students are home. And the main objective here is to reduce the number of of students physically in a in a school at a given time so that the school can practice you know a range of social distancing guidelines. And there are a few ways that school systems are are trying to figure this out. The first is uh, just thinking about you know the old model of students receiving instruction and having experiences in school and then doing homework out of school, but taking that to uh, a a wider extreme. So if a student is, let's say their turn is to be in school on Monday and Tuesday and then home Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, uh, they would on Monday and Tuesday do lots of interaction with their teachers, um, lots of small group practice, but really get lots of instruction on those two days and lots of social time in those two days. And then Wednesday and Thursday and Friday would be more about practice uh, and independent work, building on those two days of in-person instruction, much like we think about homework otherwise. You know, here in New York, I think we're one of the few large school systems where parents have been given a choice between remote and hybrid, and it's it's an agonizing decision. You know, do you have any advice, or what advice do you have? It's it's a tough it's a tough decision. I uh, you know I have a first grader starting in a public school in DC this year. And we weren't given a choice. Uh, in some ways, I'm thankful because I don't know how how to necessarily make that choice. They're starting fully remote. But I think it really comes down to you know your, your own family's risk factors and tolerance for risk and you know your own circumstances. I mean, in some ways, no wrong answers, but also no fully right answers at this time. So it really comes down to what each family thinks is best for their child, what is, what's best for their family, uh, in terms of both health risk factors, the needs of you know financial and economic and uh, and work realities, and then the extent to which you know their child can thrive in or out of school. Well, and obviously keeping staff safe too. One of the things that intrigues me about your background is that you yourself were a middle school teacher. How does that uh, inform how you view these issues? I I now feel all sides. Um, so I was a, I was a middle school teacher. Uh, I'm now a parent, and I you know I work with leaders of school systems to help try to understand from that that vantage point what to do. You know I there, there's not a week that goes by uh, that I don't think about 
my days in the classroom and my students in a sort of in normal times. And, and lately I think about it every day. I personally can't imagine what it would be like either to teach, you know, all of my students. I had 115 every day back then, all of them fully remotely. Where did you teach? Uh, I taught in, in DC public schools in a middle mm. school. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the challenge of, of a teacher who's been teaching for decades or even just one year fully in person and then having to switch to do that fully remotely is just daunting. Uh, so I definitely feel for, for all those teachers who are having to figure that out now. The challenge of, of you know, splitting that up and having some students in person on, on a couple of days and other students remote means essentially you, have to do, you could have to do twice as much planning um, and, and twice as much management at one time. Um, and then even, even if, you know, if and when schools are back fully in person before there's a vaccine, there will be uh, new challenges, uh, new challenges to deal with and maintaining social distance, new routines, et cetera, all of which are different and, uh, uh, and new. I mean, teaching is hard enough before uh, we had a global pandemic to deal with. So uh, I can certainly feel for him. I I think I can hear your first grader. (laughs) I think that's true. Virtual day one of virtual school ended uh, 30 minutes ago. So, (laughs) so Jimmy, what would the teacher self say to the parent that you are now? Any advice? (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm, I'm a little bit reticent to take advice from uh, my 12 years younger self, but uh, I think hang in there, be patient, roll with it. You know, this is, this is new for all of us. So Extend your your child's teacher a little bit of grace, extend yourself a little bit of grace, but also you know know that this is at least for you know for my son it's his one chance to have first grade. Um, for every student out there, it's their one chance to do the grade that they're in now. Right. So really, you know, persist, roll with it, and and try to learn as we all go. Well, how about then the uh, the parent slash McKinsey self advice to teachers <laughs> in deference to that it was twelve years ago that you were in middle school. Yeah, I mean the same. I think I think it is to really, you know, all teachers have relied on on the support of families and uh, and parents in the past, uh, but I think this year that that's exponentially more important, and uh, and I think therefore the communication, the level of communication, the frequency of communication, the specificity of communication is going to be higher than than it's ever been before. So uh, I know as a parent, I. I appreciate the more conversation, the more interaction uh, with my with my son's teachers, no matter how much there is. So uh, I think that's the main thing. You know, there's been a lot of discussion at the college level about rethinking college, you know, as people are sitting in their rooms doing their courses. When you think about the K to 12 system, I know it's early days yet, but what do you think the long term impact of this is likely to be on the model? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there there are a few things that have changed pretty substantially since the spring. We, we were just talking about parent engagement. Parent engagement is dramatically higher, you know, not necessarily voluntarily uh, than it was a year ago at this time. But what's interesting is many parents, when asked, are saying, you know, aside from supervising their children at home, the elements of of engagement around understanding what what their child is doing in school wanting to know how they are doing and planning to to take more of a role in in the response to how their students are doing those numbers are all high uh, parents are saying at least for now that they plan to stay as engaged as they were so i think that's one thing that will change i think schools are figuring out how to uh, work more with parents and i think that likely is to be a a muscle that schools and school systems build that will that will stick around 
What about the classroom model itself? Yeah, I think there are two things that are that have changed and and have the potential to be, you know, enduring changes. One is uh, level of use of technology and the access to technology, and the other is the role of the teacher. Everyone is 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 upping their tech quotient and their tech skill during this time. Some schools and school systems are building, you know, entire platforms to do to offer virtual instruction full time. Others have, you know, they're putting lots of their content digital and online. So I think, you know, whether it's in small ways like always having a way to assign and and have students practice uh, practice work and instruction online, to big ways for students to always have some sort of online or virtual option. I think that will likely be here to stay in in some shape or form. And then for teachers. You know, in order to do these hybrid models, in order to have enough, frankly, adult interaction for, with students uh, in a socially distanced school setting or remotely, more adults are taking part in interactions with students. And we're finding that certified teachers- As and, coaches or, or how, how? Yeah, sometimes with coaches um, in, in physical schools, uh, sometimes just supervising something like a study hall while students are, are practicing independently. But what we're finding is schools trying to figure out how to get teachers that have, you know, the skill and the experience to only do things that teachers can do. So uh, share new content or, you know, really, really deeply engage with a small group of students in practice, trying to figure out how to extend the time that teachers can do that and, and spend less time, you know, supervising uh, the cafeteria or, you know, even grading papers or doing lesson planning. So that unbundling and, and sort of redefinition of the teacher role to make sure teachers are spending time on only things that teachers can do is potentially something else that we'll see change. Yeah, it's it's hard to separate out the pandemic from the school system issues, but I've come to appreciate the social and emotional role that schools play. How much attention is being paid to that this fall? Yeah, lo- lots of attention is being being paid to this. You know, before the pandemic, we know that Roughly in the U.S., at least 80% of mental health services and other social and emotional services that are provided to students happen through the schools. They, they just are you know, an access point for children in communities. And that is likely to continue. And what's changed is uh, the importance of that and the, the knowledge and awareness of the importance of that. There are you know, reports in, in, in China of a uh, significant number of students self-reporting symptoms of, of depression or other mental health issues following their their closures earlier this year. Uh, and we're starting to hear at least anecdotal reports of that uh, throughout the U.S. I, I, I can't say that we've we've come up with all the solutions right now, but certainly ranging from small things like schools dedicating the first week or two to, to simply build relationships and check in on students emotionally to larger efforts of building in really deliberate mental health uh, and, and emotional and social support elements into the curriculum in the day-to-day, uh, and also finding ways to you know, support parents and engage family members in both checking in on their children and providing some supports to their children on these topics uh, while they're at home. I'm glad you mentioned China because the international, every, everybody has been dealing with this, um, clearly not just the U.S. What lessons can we learn from other markets? Good and bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I there there are a couple. Um, I think the first is the context of the of the place really matters. Both the actual health indicators, so number of cases, trajectory of cases, uh, hospital uh, and and broader healthcare 
system capacity, but also the ability to, to do testing and contact tracing. All of these really do contribute to a region's ability to bring people back to school in person. We, we, we learned that from both good and, and, and struggling cases uh, abroad. I think the other thing we learned was the value of communication and engagement with the community. So we saw some international systems that basically decided on a Friday they were going to open up school on a Monday and had choppy and inconsistent communication with their families uh, and with their with their teachers and then had to change guidance almost on a daily basis throughout the first couple of weeks. Systems like that had pretty significant challenges with uh, with infection rates, with their ability to keep schools open and contrast that with other systems that made plans weeks in advance, um, phased in the start of school, you know, some students in week one, others, more students in week two, more students in week three, and had really robust communication with, with families, with teachers and other stakeholders. And they were able to uh, have much more seamless opening and, and, and less cha- fewer challenges with infection rates and other things. Um, so those were the main things that we learned, I'd say, from, uh, from early attempts at reopening in the spring. I think as we open up in the fall and more school systems try getting more students back in person and have a more robust approach to the hybrid and, uh, and remote learning, I think it'll be really important that we collectively as communities and as an overall field are deliberate about what questions we ask, what data we collect, and therefore what we can learn about what's going on and what works. Well, and it's interesting because uh, while remote learning is new to, to me, certainly, I, there are many families around the world that have done this to some extent, um, whether they're homeschooling or otherwise, you know, any inspiration that we can take from them or even research as to what parents, teachers, and students can do better in that environment? Yeah, so you're right. There's Virtual learning has been around for uh, really for a couple of decades. Now, granted, these are, these are schools where families opted in to support their, their child's learning at home and, uh, and have their child learn remotely. But there are a few things that the most successful virtual school networks and individual schools have done that I think are, that can be instructive for schools now. You know, some of the supports they put in place for students are having a, you know, a dedicated text or chat line, um, especially for at-risk students to be able to connect with, for example, an experienced tutor or a peer using virtual engagement metrics to identify which students might need further one-to-one support or encouragement to engage. So if they aren't answering questions in a live chat or otherwise logging on. We also see the best virtual schools, they maintain something that looks like the routine of a typical school day. Uh, so having a morning check-in, a midday touch point, an afternoon checkout, things like that. Also, we know that virtual schools weren't fully digital. They would mail computers, but also books, printed materials, manipulatives, and other physical resources to students so they can use those uh, throughout the school year. So not eight hours of remote uh, not necessarily. virtual <laughs> That's <laughs> classes. Right. You cannot play video games. Jimmy, what is a manipulative? Yeah, good question. It's... Um, you know, little things, objects to help students count from one to 10, you know, pegs on a pegboard, uh, things yeah. like that, things that they can use with their hands to, to improve their learning. Uh, fidget spinners. <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> no, like that. Maybe. Um, any, any other thoughts, especially I'm curious as to what is on your radar. I mean, we do not know when the pandemic will end. Ergo, we don't know when the school situation will end. So for you as somebody who does research and advice in this area, what's on your radar right now? Yeah, I think it's really two things. I think one is um, really looking for school systems to be able to understand what they and their peers 
are doing on a pretty granular basis, all the way from you know the health and safety protocols for those students that are in person to what learning supports and other supports are in place in in-person, but also remote learning models um, to really make sure that you know six months from now, we aren't saying the same thing we were three months ago, which is we're trying lots of things, but we don't really know what works and what doesn't. So I think that's the big, the, the main thing on my mind now is that we stay focused and we're able to learn from the experiments and really everything that people are trying right now. And the second is, while a vaccine may still be many months out, there are other other developments happening in you know our understanding of the virus and our understanding of how to essentially live with and try to you know get as close to normal life as we can with the virus. Things like research on what role children play in uh, in both contracting but also transmitting the the virus, what that means for their safety and the safety of other adults in the classroom, you know, advances in our ability to test and, and contact trace uh, and what that could mean for the ability to, uh, to increase the amount of uh, in-person time that could happen for students in schools. So, you know, essentially everything on the, that applies beyond schools, but to our broader economy and, uh, and, and public health situation uh, and how we can use that to make it, frankly, easier on schools to do the things that they need to do, which is, you know, focus on education and supporting students and in their other facets. And I I do want to end on a, on a, I guess, an individual note to your point, which really stayed with me about the learning loss of students and especially, you know, the, the number of months that they have lost already. What advice do you have? Or it sounds like you almost have to accelerate learning to help kids catch up. Um, as this goes on, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how to address that. Yeah, I mean, we absolutely do. There were opportunity gaps between different groups of students before the pandemic. Uh, we know the pandemic is widening those gaps. Uh, so we, we have to find ways to accelerate the learning for those students that fell in particular most behind. And we know there are some things that can do this. More intensive support for students that are behind, whether it's through one-on-one tutoring or more time with uh, with highly effective teachers or simply more time, longer school days, using time over the summer or in other vacation breaks to spend time, but finding ways to have more time with uh, with students, more contact points can help. Another is we need to maintain our high expectations for students. There's plenty of research that says that students that are exposed to on-grade level content are more likely to catch up than uh, than students that are you know catered to and and only exposed to content that that maybe we think they can handle and and without trying to challenge them and and the third is to not just focus on the academics but to support the whole child uh, everything from relationships with the adults that are working with them to broader social and emotional supports uh, to tend to their their mental and physical health overall and I think the the challenge to us all is you know, we know some of these things work. We have closed some achievement gaps in pockets before, but this is a whole new scale. Uh, and so we need to really invest as, as a society, as an education field, uh, as families to do these things at, at a pace, at a scale and a level of intensity that, frankly, we haven't been able to do before. I can't think of a better place to end than there. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Thank you, Diane. It was a pleasure. And that was Jimmy Sarah Kusanis, who co-leads McKinsey's education practice. And thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about the research that Jimmy and his colleagues have done, go to mckinsey.com. I'm Diane Brady. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey 
our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.